Welcome to Unconditional Love with Bishop Malcolm Smith. This is episode 114, Your Father Knows. For more information and more teachings by Malcolm Smith, including books, videos, and MP3 downloads, please visit www.malcolmsmith.org. And now, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you all. And I, I want to continue to talk in the same, what shall I say, looking for the same attitude of faith as we talked about last week. But um, this week stands on its own two legs. And so if you didn't hear last week, this will make a whole lot of sense to you. Uh, I want to look in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 6. And um, in from verse, what, 27? No, even earlier than that, 25, where Jesus begins this section by saying, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Then he goes on saying, look at the birds, and then can you worry yourself into a greater height, and then consider the lilies of the field, and so on. And then he comes down to verse 31. Again, therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, and the word Gentile essentially means a person who does not know the covenant. You could say uh, an unbeliever. And he says, all, after all these things, persons who are ignorant of the covenant, who are ignorant of who God really is, the unbeliever, after all these things, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear, roof over our head, after those things the unbeliever seeks. Now this is Jesus' remedy to that situation. He says, so get, get this, it's important, verse 31, we do not worry, therefore do not worry. And then he jumps here. This is his solution to that. We do not worry. Why? For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Now, that verse, I, I, I have not been able to get away from it for days. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. And that is placed over against all the worry, the anxiety, the fretting of these, the unbelievers, the, the world, essentially, the world around us. Because if ever there was a time when we are living unquestionably in days of anxiety and, and in some cases sheer terror on a global scale... Uh, the, these are the days where that is true. Everyone is in a state of worry and anxiety, uh, unless they're drugged out of their mind. But uh, the normal people that you rub shoulders with, go to work with, your neighbor, there, there is a, an atmosphere of worry and anxiety. That, that's the context. Fretting, fussing, fuming, 
laying awake, insomnia. That's all in these words that Jesus said. And Jesus then says the solution to that, that the believer has already come to, the believer who lives in rest, it is that your father knows that you have need of all these things. Everything that the unbeliever is worried about and is fussing and fretting about, your, your heavenly father knows you need those things. Now, I don't know how that gets a hold of you. Your father knows that you have need of these things. And for Jesus, that was it. That was enough. The fact that father knew, he doesn't have to say any more. That's, that's the, the punch of this text. But look at it a little more carefully. He says, your father knows. Now, in English, we, we don't have very much wriggle room with this word, no. We use it all over the place, and we, we, it's just no. But in the Greek language, there, there is a very careful difference between certain kinds of knowing, and it, it expands to certain kinds of seeing. And this word, no, it's very specific. It means, number one, a full knowledge. You might call it an absolute knowledge. You could say, knows everything there is to know about this particular subject. So he is saying that your father has an absolute, a full knowledge of all the things that you have need of. And the suggestion is that he knows about those things that you have need of. He knows more than you do. So he, what, what we say that we know that we need, that's only the tip of the iceberg. Your father knows the whole jolly iceberg. He, he knows what you need. He knows what you think you need. He knows <clears throat> completely, absolutely. <clears throat> but also this word knowing, it's, this is its interesting thing. It's not a knowledge that is gained by observation. You know, if I know something, it means in some way, shape or form I've observed it. <clears throat> and I have come to the conclusion that I have need of it. I, I, I have a knowledge <clears throat> that, that has been fed to me from information from the outside. Now, this is not that kind of knowing. This, this knowledge is not gained by research. <coughs> Excuse me. It, it's not gained by observation. I suppose the word that we would use here is intuitive. He said his father knows, not because someone has told him everything and now finally he's got the hang of it. It doesn't mean that he spent the last 24 hours carefully observing to see the details of what you need and finally he says, now I get it. No. He says your father has an absolute knowledge and he knows it because he's your father. 
He knows it not because of observation, but because of the kind of knowledge that he has. And it's a knowledge that's linked with perception. So it's not merely what you see, because what you see is not always the truth or all of the truth. Your father knows. He knows completely. He knows absolutely. He perceives the real truth about the situation. Therefore, he knows it better than you do. And he knows it not because someone told him, not because he's good at research, but because he's your father and he's your heavenly father. He is God, your heavenly father, and he knows it all. Okay, then my father knows completely about my life and specifically the context here. He's talking about the very mundane stuff of what's in the refrigerator, in the clothes closet, uh, and, and what's over your head. He knows. Now, this is the amazing thing to me about this verse is that for Jesus, the fact that the Father knows what we need, for Jesus, that was the end of the problem. You, do you follow me? Uh, if, if Jesus had said that the Father knows what you're needing and, and therefore um, he, he's possibly going to do something about it or you can, you know, sort of religiously attack him and try to make him do something or, or to spend three nights in prayer or, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, he do, Jesus doesn't go on to say any method or any formula or anything else that's to be done. He simply said, your father knows. What's the problem? Your father knows what things you have need of. And I say again, that fact for Jesus was the end of the problem. Because when the father knows... He doesn't know it as an item of knowledge to be filed away, uh, and, and just a, you know, a sort of curiosity or some limitless government bureaucrat that is paid for doing nothing but filing information that no one is going to care about. No, your father knows, and the fact he knows means that he's going to act. He cannot know something as a curious piece of information. He cannot know something merely to put in a divine file. If Jesus knows it, rather if the Father knows it, Jesus said he's going to act. And why is that so? Because the Father is love. He is compassion. And for him to know that you have need in those most mundane areas of life is that he is going to act in love and compassion. That's what Jesus is saying. Or to say it maybe rather bluntly, you can take that for granted 
I, I know that's not always used in a very positive sense. Some, uh, if you take someone for granted, it, it would probably mean you're demeaning them in some way. But I don't mean it like that at all. I mean that this is a final finished fact. Therefore, I am saying you can take that for granted that your father knows you deeper than you ever could know yourself and he knows your needs in all their dimensions more than you could ever fathom and the fact he knows means that his compassion and love power wisdom is now active toward you to meet those needs and so the unbelievers answer to the fact I do need food and I do need shelter and I do need clothes, the unbeliever's answer is I worry, I fret, and, and I've got to, I, I, I lay awake all night trying to figure out how I'm going to do it. Jesus said, you, on the other hand, a believer, you rest in the fact that Father knows completely my needs and therefore he will supply my needs and I turn over and I go to sleep. That's wonderful, but it's heavy stuff. Takes us to the heart of New Testament faith. But wait a minute, it says your father knows. Well, whenever you say the word father, you are assuming children. If, if, if a, a chap is single, then you don't call him father. Father assumes the presence of children. So when it says your father knows, it is saying in the same breath that you, you who the, the person, the object of his knowledge and love, then you are his child. Faith, biblical faith, what the Bible means by faith, at the heart of that, it is childlike. And as far as the world is concerned, these unbelievers... The attitude I've just described is not only childlike, they say it's childish. But I say again, faith, specifically faith in the Father, is childlike. In fact, when Jesus described this on another occasion, he, he used our human father-child relationships to be the springboard to describe the Heavenly Father. Because we are made in the image of God, however blitzed that might be. The fact that we are made in the image of God, we can see uh, images and shadows of how the Father deals with us in our own relationships of father and child. Of course, there are some tragically more than some fathers who have blasphemed the name of God the Father by the way they've treated their children. And 
we come back to the fact that we never find God the Father through our earthly fathers. Never, never. You might have the best father in the world, but you, he's, you cannot go through him to God the Father. Jesus said, John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father except by me. And so if you have a problem with your earthly father, just look at Jesus and concentrate on Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And sooner or later, you'll realize God the Father is exactly like Jesus. Jesus is the fullest revelation of the Father, not your earthly father. But Jesus did say that under the best of conditions that... If you, and he says, if you fathers being evil, meaning uh, none of you are to be likened to the heavenly father, but he said, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly father give his gifts, gives the Holy Spirit? You see, he, he is saying when we call God our Father, it's not just some uh, holy, distant, unrelated name that we call him. Jesus is saying God the Father is everything your heart would think of when you think of the best possible Father on earth. And he continually referred to persons in the kingdom of God as children. In fact, he said, except you become as a little child, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven is for the childlike heart. And when they were having their great theological discussion, and the disciples were, who shall be the greatest? Who is the most wonderful Christian. And if you remember, Jesus almost ignored them and took a little child and put him in the center of the discussion and said, if you want to see what the kingdom of God is about, look at this child. So childlikeness and us as children of God calling him Father through Jesus that, that's the heart of the kingdom of God. Uh, come, come off your high horse. You know, we, we want to be the famous people of God. Well, famous people of God just don't cut it in the kingdom of God. We become as little children. And we call him father. Or as most of you know, um, the, the Hebrew word there, Abba, which is a high form of daddy. That's it. So the highest honor, the highest praise that we give to the Father is to be like little children who expect him to act in his love toward us. The highest praise I can give to the Father is to expect him to be who he says he is, to take him at his word, and then in my childlike spirit to go on my way rejoicing. 
Not to debate that and to wonder, well, I wonder if it will work today. No, no, little children don't do that. You tell them and they believe it and they go on their way dancing and singing to rejoice in the fact of who the Father is, that He is love, He is care, He is compassion, and just accept that. Be it unto me according to your word. Let it be so without doubt. And doubt means double, which means switching from one side to the other. He loves me, he loves me not, you see. He loves me, he loves me not. Did I do enough today to deserve his love? Did I read my Bible? All that rubbish. No, 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 no. Just leap into the arms of Father without doubt without concern that he might have changed since last you talked. Now this, this faith, and, and again, faith is made into something so complicated. Faith is running to Father with your arms outstretched to come to rest in who he is to know true security in who he is, to be carefree, at ease with the fact that his love is unchangeable. All that he was from unbeginning he is and ever shall be. His love is all power. His love is all wise and always it's unfailing. If he says that he knows what things we have need of, I say again, take that for granted then and go and play in the sight of your father. Look, as, as the months go by with our grandchild, Julianne, I've talked about her many times, she comes up here betimes. And she's an education on this very fact. I look at that little child and I realize she has no concern, not even a concept actually, of the mortgage to be paid on the house where she lives. She has no concern or concept as to where the food is coming from she expects it to be there when she gets home. Um, do, do you understand what I'm trying to say? That, that she, she never is concerned about who's paying for the electric bill or, or so on and so on. All she knows it will be there. And there's a thousand other things she doesn't have care about and doesn't even really know about which constitute her protection, her provision, her being watched over and nurtured and sustained as she grows into a young lady, doesn't even know all that goes into her welfare. That's her daddy's concern, not hers. That that's what's here, buried in this text. Jesus said, your father knows. What are you doing worrying about that? David, even though Old Testament, and even though David did not know that the heart of 
God was Father, but still he had this understanding. You remember he said so many times, and I, I, we've referred to it so many times, it comes out in the Psalms, the Lord is my, the Lord is my light, the Lord is my salvation, the Lord is my refuge, the Lord is my stronghold, the Lord is my high rock, the Lord is my shield, the Lord is the lifter of my head, and so on and so on. The Lord is my, the Lord is my. Now, say those words in the light of what we're talking about here. David is not trying to make the Lord become his light. He's not whining, oh, please, God, be my refuge, please, please, please. You, you understand? It comes over as it's never occurred to him that the Lord is anything but that. He who is covenant, love, and faithfulness, then he's my refuge. Why do I worry and anxiety about all my enemies and those who would crush me? The Lord is my salvation. Do you, do you understand? He's not begging for him to become salvation. He, he's assuring his soul and he's declaring it in praise. He is my salvation. He is. Maybe one of the um, neatest things in this, and we omitted to talk about this when we did it, but some weeks ago we did Psalm number 3. And in that psalm, if you remember, it begins by David reporting on what the mob was saying. You know, all the, the multitude of people out there outside the gates of his house, and they, they were all saying, David's finished. They, they, he said, they said of my soul, there is no hope for him in God. The old man's finished. It's time for change, time for new ideas. And Absalom ran his campaign. Though, of course, um, to do that, he had to want to kill his father. But he wanted his father out of the way. And he ran that campaign of betrayal as a traitor. His campaign was, hope in me, I'll bring the change you want. And David's finished. And so it was running through Jerusalem, running through the length and breadth of Israel. David's finished. He's too old. There's no hope for him in God. God's moved on to Absalom. And so it was... David reported that. He said, oh God, many, many are saying of me, there's no hope for him in God. Then he says, but thou, O Lord, art a shield about me. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. And as I was putting this together, it occurred to me, it never occurred to David that maybe the people were right. Have you ever thought about that? See, we read these psalms, so, you know, well, they're the psalms, so we just read them. Get inside his head. Everybody 
down at the coffee shops, in the bazaars, standing on street corners. It, it was all over the place. People, yak, 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 yak. And all in whispers, David's finished. There's no hope for him in God. I say again, do you realize it never occurred to David that maybe they were right? What does that tell you? It tells you that David was so rooted in the reality that he was the beloved of this covenant God who would never leave him and never forsake him. That in the face of literally the entire nation saying he's finished, David says, but thou, O Lord, are the shield around me. See, what, what everybody says about you, um, that, that whatever they're saying has to be placed up against the truth, who is God. I, I don't listen to the people to mirror who I am. If I did, I would have long gone. You would never have heard of me. No, the mirror in which I see who I am is the Father who loves me with an unbegun, an unending, an unfailing, unconditional love that was revealed in Jesus in his death and resurrection that is poured out into my heart by the Holy Spirit. And that same Holy Spirit rises within me to assure me that I'm the child of the Father. And the Father knows. He knows completely. He knows absolutely. In fact, Jesus said that the Father loves us, you and I, in the same way that he loves Jesus. Jesus said it in the upper room. It's, uh, we can't go there except to quote this bit of it. But Jesus essentially said, I don't, you don't need me to pray for you anymore. The Father himself loves you. You don't need me. As if I, I, I'm loved more than you. You're coming into my family and the Father loves you. The Father listens to you. The Father delights over you. And the New Testament picks it up and, and, and says the same Holy Spirit that dwelt in and upon Jesus now dwells in and upon us. Think about that. And it says that you and I are heirs of God the Father. We are joint heirs or sharing together with Jesus. Yeah. Your Father knows what things you have need of. I said earlier, the unbeliever thinks this attitude, well, everything I've said in the last half an hour, the unbeliever thinks I'm quite nuts. Seriously. And when I say unbeliever, I would have to include into that the, the religious. And by that I do not mean... Um, persons of the Catholic Church. I, I use that term in the sense of the Pharisee mentality, the legalist. See, they fret and worry 
I mean, they're very religious people, but they fret and they worry and they're full of anxiety. Can I say this? More so than the believe, unbeliever outside of the faith. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Here's a person, and now they would at least claim to be a believer, yet they have more fretting and more fussing and more anxiety than they had as unbelievers. It's an amazing thing, but it's true. Why? Because now they have introduced into the scope of their worry and fretting God. They now worry about God. Worry as to whether they have his attention or not. Worry and are full of their religious anxiety as to whether they've done enough to please God. And so they're going to, they're gathering together, the church is more out of their worry and fear and guilt around God rather than just to worship and delight in the Father who knows them and loves them. You, you understand that's why every one of their services ends with that same monotonous come forward and say you're sorry and try and make it right with God. Try and get his attention. Why do you have to try and get God's attention? Well, because you believe he doesn't really care. No, not really. You have to do something to make him caring. He, he's basically unwilling to become involved in your life. He's indifferent to our situation. You've got to do something to arouse him and force his interest. And if, when, when such persons hear that Jesus said the Father knows, they look at you blankly because as, as far as they're concerned, the Father indeed might know, but he might not do anything about it. And that's why such persons make contracts with, with God. They, they say, I'll do this if you'll do that. Promise to be holy. I promise to read my Bible. I won't do that anymore. I won't go there anymore. I... <laughs> you need to get yourself some sort of religious attorney to argue your case before God that you're worth loving. Because that's what you're doing. You're arguing your case using your track record of being a nice chap. You're a decent person, so you've got... Hope God notices. And then when we get around to asking the Father for, for the supply for our needs, we, we cancel the whole thing out by saying, if it be your will. Well, you mean I've said all of this and done all of this and I'm not really sure whether he cares a hoot anyway. I, I, if it be your will... I've spent all this time laying out before you what I perceive I need, and then I say, but of course I might have been absolutely up the wrong tree, and so um, cancel it out. If it... No wonder you're paralyzed before need. No longer, no wonder you, you stand before the promises of God and you go 
just numb because you don't know whether he wants to do it today or not. Oh, how sad. Confusion to the max. That's totally absent. This text is about little children just believing what daddy says and going on their way like little children. No. You see, religion would say, and that's actually been said to me, that what I have said to you tonight is that I'm being proud to say that this this relationship with Father, it, it, they, are, they told me it borders on blasphemy. I'm being too bold. Well, you make up your mind on that. This text tells me my Father knows. And because He knows, I can relax. He's my Father. I am the object of His love. Of course, I suppose that everybody, especially in today's world, when I'm pushing you to this, that we simply rest without debate, without doubt. We we are at ease in the presence of such a father. I think everybody has, has a moment of, I wonder... Because, and hear me carefully, we live today in a culture of lies. Uh, When one is of my age and starts talking about their youth, of course you expect me to say things were not like this. But I'm, (laughs) they weren't like this 20 years ago. We, We live in a culture where lying is accepted as acceptable. In fact, it's not called lying anymore. What are all other funny words for it? Double talk is accepted. And so, you see, we become cynics. I suppose if, if you are going to listen to what authority figures around us are saying you are going to become a cynic don't believe a word anyone says and you know that within days they will say the exact opposite without apology and people will laugh about it because that's what we expected didn't we see it's lies in Isaiah he speaks of a day when truth lies mugged in the street well We certainly are in such a day. But remember this, in John chapter 8, around uh, verse 40 or so, Jesus said that Satan is the father of lies, and his offspring speak his lies. And over against that, Jesus said, I am the truth. And becoming a believer is called in Peter and elsewhere obeying the truth. And John talked about the Christian life as walking in the truth, speaking the truth. And right at the head of speaking truth and Jesus saying, I am the truth, is the truth about the Father. Who, it says in James, there's no shadow of turning 
That is, he's not like the sun that goes around and then you get into the dark. No, he, there's no shadows. There's no turning. He is light. He is truth. What he says he is and what you hear is what he said. And he cannot fail for his very being is I am the Lord I change not. No. We forsake all of that. Truth is that he is your father through Jesus Christ. And he knows and he loves. Do you remember Gideon back there in the book of Judges? And it's a great story. Don't have time to tell it now. But remember he was hiding from the oppressors the enemies and he was hiding from them because he had given up all hope that there was any deliverance for him or his people in God and and the angel of the Lord the very word of God sat under the tree as he came out of his hiding place and, and addressed him as a mighty man of valor and the Lord was with him. And Gideon contradicted God. He said that might have been true back in the old days but right now God has abandoned us. We're on our own our enemies are stronger than we are, and on and on. The whining, complaining of unbelief. And when the word of God in the messenger replied to him, he totally ignored everything he had said and told him the strength of his life was in the fact that God was with him. Or you could say Gideon took it for granted that God was not true. He took it for granted that everything that was in his scripture was for another day and another people. But the response of the word of God took it for granted that God was true and God was love and God was with Gideon and the people, even if Gideon did not believe it, Gideon's belief did not change the truth. God acts because of who he is, not because of something we have done. And he who is God acts in these things. Jesus was talking about the little things. So you could say, relating back to Gideon, that he sits in your kitchen, sits in your living room, and he addresses you as a child of the Father, one with whom the covenant God has chosen to dwell. And the God, your Father, knows you. And because he knows you, his love wills to be your provider, be your protector, and so on. 
and the little things of the Gentiles, the unbelievers are continually in a state of terror about. And so you have stories in the Bible about this, like Elijah. Do you many chapters in the Bible, verses anyway, that are to do with Elijah's need of being fed and how, first of all, he's guided to a brook called Kareth where he was miraculously fed by birds turning up every morning and night, dropping food off. It's an interesting story. Um, but then uh, he goes to the north, into Syria, actually, to Tyre and Sidon, area and the widow of Zarephath and there's the miraculous multiplication of the flour and the oil so that they all three of them the, the woman and her child and Elijah have enough to eat over the next some 18 months your father knows one little dot of existence called Elijah and then another little dot. I mean, we don't even know her name, the widow of Zarephath and her son, whoever that was. See, I mean, these are so ordinary people and yet your father knows. And they were fed throughout the entire famine that gripped the land. I remember when I was in Russia and this old couple, forgive me if I've told you this story before, but it's apropos. This old couple said that when communism <clears throat> came to their area with their, um, well, what's the word, the collective, they, they, they took over. They said our business was our hens that laid the eggs and and, and so we took what eggs we needed for ourselves and we sold the eggs and that's how we lived. But then the government came and they took over our farm and they took our eggs and gave them to somebody else. And that was all we had. We were left to starve. And so they rested in this fact, this reality that... I seek to share with you that beyond the government, beyond communism, there was the Father who knew. And as they sat at their kitchen table, wondering how Father would carry them through this, they said this strange hen came into the kitchen. It wasn't one of their hens. Don't know where it came from. This hen walked into their kitchen and laid eggs on the kitchen floor. And having done so, turned around and went out. Came back in the evening and laid eggs on the kitchen floor. And that continued every day. They had their eggs to eat, they did not starve in spite of the fact the government took all of their eggs to give to somebody else. <laughs> they said, 
we, we didn't report it to the government because this wasn't one of our hens. And the hen always came after the government officials had come. And so the father preserved them all through those times. Your father knows. Do you remember Elisha? When that woman came to him whose sons were going to be sold to slavery because of debt and she had nothing. And Elisha asks, what do you have in the house? And she said, there's this little tiny pot of oil. And he says, well, get all the containers, the barrels and the, anything that will contain, get it, borrow it and bring it here. And as she began to pour from that little tiny container, it kept pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring until every container was filled with oil so that she was able to go into the oil business and pay off her debts and have enough to live. Yeah, I don't know if you know these stories are in the Bible, you see. This is, this is God. It's all these things that Jesus spoke of. The things that deal with, with what do we eat and what do we drink and where's the money coming from for? He says, your father knows. And he's saying it plainly and straightly and he's bringing us in his own person into relationship with the father. But it's been there since the very beginning. This is the way God is. He healed people in the Old Testament, physical healing. But in the New Testament, it bursts like, like a flood bursting the banks of a river. Jesus went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil. There was never a question. This was Father's will. He knows your pain. He knows where you're at and he healed. He fed 5,000 from five loaves and two fishes. He turns the water to wine. They're not to dazzle the crowd. That's not a wow miracle to put on in some circus. It was to tell us that your father knows when you're in pain. He knows your sickness. He knows when you're hungry. He knows when your celebration is going off track and you need the wine and so on. This is our God. And I'm sorry, he doesn't fit the religious pattern. He's too involved with us. So, what do you do? Begin your day with realizing this. Don't go plunging into the day and then halfway through realize that you've been acting as if there is no God of love. Begin the day. As you sit on the edge of your bed, begin the day with the full recognition that you are his child and he is your Abba, your father. And he knows, and because he knows, you can take it for granted. He wills to fill every need with his love, power, and wisdom. And as you face the need, you pray. Ah, but you see, you pray totally unlike a merely religious person because you're not praying to try to make God do something. 
You're not praying to twist his arm. You're not praying to make a contract with God. You're praying because he knows and he is the answer. So as the scripture says, before you call, I will answer. He is the answer and it is your call that brings him into the midst of your life with all the blessing and the grace that the moment needs. And therefore your praying is laced with praise and thanksgiving and your day is laced with prayer and praise and thanksgiving because you you cannot look at a God like this and not just praise him and thank him. And in your praise and thanks, the scripture teaches that you, you are opening the way for seeing the action of his love and salvation. Have you ever considered in this light, Acts 16, where Paul and Silas are thrown in jail? Do you, you know how that all began, don't you? Um, Paul had confronted the local demonic temple. And we know from history outside of the Bible that was the temple of the Python God. I mean, how demonic can you get? And he had confronted that temple in a poor demon-possessed little fortune teller. And she had been delivered and the temple went nuts and the whole town was incited to riot and so Paul and Silas were arrested and they were beaten with a terrible beating and thrown into the dungeon which was inside the jail. You couldn't get further away from the light. And there they were put into stocks and there, which is to twist your muscles and bones to the point of breaking and then lock them in that place. Well... To put it mildly, they've lost everything in the matter of a few hours. Their mission to Europe, which was, the, they were at the beginning of that mission, it seems to have been flushed down the toilet before they even got started. And horrors, that was all accomplished by the demonic temple. So it looks as if the devil won. It looks as if they've been abandoned and defeated. And don't look at me like that, because no, you know the end of the story. Get inside their heads. This is what it looked like. Not to mention the pain that they were in, which certainly mightily dis distracts the mind of a person. Do you realize, if you read that story, it did not occur to them that the father had abandoned them think about that. It didn't occur to them that they had been defeated in their mission. It certainly didn't occur to them that it looked as if Satan had won. Why? Because their father knew and their father's plans of love and wisdom went deeper and wider than their puny brains could ever think. And so what do they do? They just start singing praise to God with the loudest voice they had so that you could hear them 
outside the prison. And they're not doing that for a show. They're doing it because our Father knows. He knows with an absolute knowing. He knows everything that is going on now that we don't. And you remember there was an earthquake. And remember the jailer comes to confess faith in Jesus and bathes the wounds of Paul and Silas. And they're sitting eating breakfast the next morning. And who shows up but all of the town council? And they're terrified. They said, we found out that you are a Roman citizen and we beat you. And that meant they could lose their heads for beating without a trial a Roman citizen. And they're pleading with them, please don't tell anybody. Please leave, leave the city and we, we, we won't do anything. And Paul will not leave the city until the mission was back on track until that Philippi church that's just now been started, no one is ever going to touch that church for fear. That's interesting. Talk about a defeat. Satan had such a defeat on that occasion, I can hear the demons saying, if only we had left them alone. You see, if you do not realize, recognize that your father knows, then your praise is hollow. Your prayers are hopeless. But if you know that your father knows and loves you, you do not stand paralyzed before the crisis. You stand with prayer and praise in your mouth, knowing that there shall be a manifestation of love's answer. And you can speak the word of faith that this is the way it is. And surely goodness and loving kindness, it will follow me all the days of my life and so on. Well, my time has gone. But just know this, that in these days in which we live, no anxiety, no worry, but just recognize your heavenly Father knows the things you have need of. Make your bed there and rest in Him. And now the blessing of God, God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, His blessing rest upon you this day, opening the eyes of your understanding, flooding you with His light of truth, embracing you in His love, and enabling you to walk in boldness in the midst of this present evil world. So I bless you and declare this is the way it is. Amen.